everybody. All right. I think we need a second opportunity to welcome our forte wearing <laughs> sister. <laughs> we at least praise your courage. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I got 87 on my fingernails, Jordy Nelson nails. So, um, but we're all one in Christ. So I hope you got something like what you wanted for Christmas. If you're a kid, you deserve nothing. So whatever you got is better than that. So you should be glad. Um, I got, you got a violin? Awesome. Nice. So different when the kids are here. Um, so, yeah, so I mean, I don't know about you. I, I got clothes mostly. And um, so I, I came in this morning and um, Lisa came in and she said, first thing she always says, do you need anything? And then she's like, oh, that's a nice sweater. Doesn't really go with your shirt, though, does it? And which just encouraged me that we have an open and honest relationship, which is good. Um, and but I, I just thought that I should probably let those of you women who would have agreed with her in on something about how men dress. Okay, this is not all men. There's some men that are more stylish than me. But let me just tell you how most men dress. It all starts with the pants, because how your pants feel matters more than how your shirts feel. Shirt feels. So you start with the pants, and then what shirt goes with these pants that I didn't wear yesterday? Okay? And you put on that shirt. Then if it's chilly and you want to wear something like a sweater, because your wife bought you one and you're then, you know, expected to wear it, our assumption is, is that if somebody was competent enough to publish a shirt in which there were multiple colors, if you put something over it that has one of those colors in it, you're good. Okay? That's it. So right there. Boom. Boom. I'm good. All right? If it's more complicated than that, I need a tutorial. That's all I'm saying. Just do a YouTube video and we'll link it to the blog. Um, for the last several weeks, we've been going through— I, I just wasted 45 seconds of your life. Yeah, that's true if that's what you're thinking. Um, we've been going through a series um, called Isaiah's Vision, the Servant Messiah, which is part of our gospel through the Bible series. Um, for, this is for the book of Isaiah. How is the gospel— the truth about Jesus and how God redeems people through faith in Christ. How is that in the book of Isaiah? And one of the main ways it comes across in the book of Isaiah is through this figure of the Messiah, the servant, that we're going to actually start talking about today because we're going to start talking about Isaiah 42. So if you've got a Bible, open it to Isaiah 42. If you don't, in the Pew Bibles, it's um, 1124. You're going to want to find it because we're going to flip back and forth a few pages. And if you're a kid— this is one of the ways that you can stay engaged is you can be the Bible verse detective and you can flip back and forth and find the Bible verses I'm going to read. And I do promise to preach shorter than my normal 70 minutes because the kids are in here. Um, so I'm going to read chapter 42, the first nine verses, and then we're going to weave around a little bit because we're going to need to. So this is Isaiah chapter 42. In case you're not familiar with the biblical history, this is about 700 years before Christ. And it's um, during a period called the exile where um, God's people have lost their land. They've been, um, they've been sent to a place far away from where they live. And um, it's not good times. Um, and this is part of chapters 40 to the end of Isaiah. It's the, like the second book of Isaiah. And it's about comfort and what's going to happen and how God is going to redeem his people out of that situation that he sent them into. Does that make sense? I sure hope so. Chapter 42, verses 1 and 9. This is the Lord speaking. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. 
I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, he who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. So this is now the Lord speaking, speaking to the servant figure. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. And then the rest of the chapter is a psalm of praise in response to that. Now, one of the things that kind of comes out if you're reading this and paying attention is, okay, so who's the servant? Right? Obviously, this whole passage is about the servant and the servant's significance, and that is supposed to have some kind of significance for me. So we better start with, who's the servant? And the short answer to that question is, Jesus. The longer answer to that question is, you might not know that reading through it the first time. Um, let me kind of explain why. Go back, turn a page back to Isaiah chapter 41, starting in verse 7. Okay, so big 41, little 7, right? That's just one page back in the Pew Bible. Here's what it says. The craftsman encourages the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer spurs on him who strikes the anvil. That sounds really, really spiritual, right? He's ta they're talking about people who make idols, like false gods. And he's like, you know, the guy who makes the metal part encourages the guy who overlays it with gold, and they're all like, yeah, right? Are you with me so far? Okay, good. He says of the welding, it's good. And he nails down the idol so it will not topple, which is supposed to be a joke, right? Like if you have a God that you have to nail down, that's probably not a good thing to put your trust in, right? So God says in Isaiah, he's the one who upholds us. And the, the idols are the gods that we have to nail down. Um, which is an interesting metaphor for your own personal idolatry. What in your life are you still trying to grip to that you're trying to nail it down for yourself, Right? I'm, that's over-spiritualizing, but let's move on. And then it says in verse 8, But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you, and I have not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. So Jacob is a reference to who? This is participatory. You kids, if you know the answer, you can shout it out. Who is Jacob referring to? Israel, right? The Israel and Jacob, that's the same guy, right? And he was the father of the whole people of Israel. So if God says Jacob or he says Israel, he's talking about the same group of people, the Jewish nation, right? And, he, and so who is the servant in this passage? Is it Jesus? No, who is it? It's Israel, right? Lloyd is getting all the answers right, but he's the pastor, so he's supposed to. So if you want to play too, just go ahead, right? 
Okay, so flip over to chapter 44, starting in verse 1. Okay, so that's page 1128 in the Pew Bible, starting in—I'm going to start verse 1. So just find the big 44, and we're starting right there. But now, listen, O Jacob, say it with me, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, this is what the Lord says. He who made you and formed you in the womb, and who will help you, do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Jeshurun is a part of Israel that sort of speaks for the whole thing. So it's just a different reference to God's people in Israel, right? And so who is the servant in that passage? Jesus? It's Israel, right? Okay. So do you see how you could get a little confused here? Now look at verses 8 and 9 in that same chapter. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? No, there is no rock. I know not one. So notice again, he's talking about the servant, and in each of these cases he talks about the servant, God talks about his own exclusive lordship, right? So in chapter 42, he says all this stuff about the servant, and then what does he say why he says all that? He says, because I will not give my glory to anybody else or my praise to idols. Because I won't do that, here's what I'm going to do with my servant. Same thing here. He says, oh, my servant, and he talks about the servant. He says, here's why. Because there's no other, there's no other rock. There's nothing else for you to be built on that's going to uphold you. And so I don't, I don't know. He's like, he's like, I'm God, and I know everything, and I don't know of any other God. That's kind of like the politically correct way to say there's no other God, right? He's like, there might be another one, but I know everything, and I don't know there's another one, right? And so that's kind of the content that goes with this. Now flip over to chapter 45, starting in verse 4. <clears throat> 45, verse 4. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you the title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. Right? That's probably not Jesus, right? Though you don't acknowledge me, right? Okay. So you could imagine you're reading through this, you read over chapter 42, and you wouldn't go, oh, that's Jesus. You'd be like, oh, that's more about the people of Israel. They're going to get—they're going to get better or something. And that's because exactly what's happening in the latter, latter part of the book of Isaiah here um, isn't really clear exactly who the servant is until you get to chapter 49. Chapter 49 through till the end of 53 and then on through the end of 56, really lays out more clearly, and then you have to sort of back understand it to chapter 42. So flip a couple pages more to chapter 49. All right. Now you tell me at what point we figure out that the servant is not Israel. Okay? Just go, boom! Okay? Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Now, the I here is the servant, okay? Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, 
and my reward is with my God. Anything so far? No, we're still good, right? It's Israel. Verse 5, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and gather Israel to himself. Boom! Right? It's just me? Come on, kids. Like, I give you the right to yell boom in church. And you know, it's going to be a while before we do this again. Boom! Boom! Right? Okay, there we are. Yeah, you can keep going. I got, I'm mic'd. I can talk over you. Um, right, verse 5 says, And now, right, the Lord says, He who formed me, me as the servant, in the womb to be his servant. Now, what is this servant doing to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself? Right? So if the servant is going to bring back Jacob, if the servant is going to bring back Israel, he can't be Israel, he can't be Jacob, right? Because he's the one who is going to serve the Lord by bringing Israel and Jacob back to himself. Now, the question then becomes, then why so confusing? And when we get into chapter 52 and 53, which we'll do in a few weeks, this will play out a little bit more. But why so confusing? And, and here's why. Because Israel— the people he's talking to in this context, the Jewish people, are the servant. They are the servant. As you read through Isaiah, the, the, the Israel are the people of God that God called out from among all the nations, and he called them out to, to know who he is, to live that out, and to display who he is to all the peoples of the whole world. That's why he connects them being the servant with them needing to not be idolaters, and them to recognize his glory and that he's the only one. That that's, that's so important. And that that's what he wants for them. So that they can be the servant, right? That is, they can serve God by living out the will of God, by showing all people that God is God, right? And here's the problem. They just joined up teams with all the rest of the peoples. You read through Isaiah, and the whole point of Isaiah is for about 500 years— the, they were supposed to help transform the nations And they've simply become just like the nations And so the task that God has given them They've essentially forfeited They're supposed to show all the peoples of the world That God is God And instead they're the ones making idols And hammering them down And nailing them to stuff And cover, overlaying them with gold And being like, that's good welding And he's like, uh, that doesn't That's not going to do it and so when he says in the beginning of chapter 42, he says, Behold, my servant. You see what he's doing? Israel is God's servant. But when, when Israel, just like we do, acted just like everybody else, he couldn't redeem Israel with Israel. He had to create another servant that would bring the servant back so it could be the servant to the nations. Right? And if you flip back to chapter 42, that's exactly how chapter 41 ends. With God explicitly saying that. So find the 42 and look at two verses above that on 28. That's page 1124. Right? He says, I look, this is the Lord now, I look, but there is no one, no one among them to give counsel, no one to give answer when I ask them. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. You see what he's saying? 
He's saying, I look at my people, my people who at least two things are supposed to be true about them. They're supposed to worship me and not idols, and they're supposed to have some at least prophetic voice among them, that even if they're not all living for my glory and not worshiping idols, there's somebody there to answer when I speak, to speak to the people. There's some redemptive seed at least from which you can marshal some kind of transformation. He's like, and there isn't. The ground is barren and there are no seeds in it. There's no, there's no seed of redemption and there's no real identity of obedience. And so once you recognize that's the verses that immediately precede this, when he says, now behold or see, here is my servant. What he's saying is, I gave, I gave the world this people that was supposed to be for my glory, and they have become again like all the peoples of the, the world. So, in, but I'm not going to get rid of them, right? You read in chapter 4, he, he says, I'm not going to throw you away. He's, he's like, I'm going to put, I'm going to get you back where you, where I meant for you to be. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring a greater servant, a truer servant, the one who is true Israel. And when I do that, he is going to make a people of God out of the earth. And that people of God is going to do what I have sent them to do, which is to display my glory to all people, to send my redemptive purposes to all lands, and to show that you don't need to hope in idols but you can hope in God, the one that really is. And when you, when you realize that, then when you read chapter 42, it's not weird at all that the servant means Israel in so many other places, but it means Jesus here, and later on in 51 to 53, and it's supposed to say, you and I, just like the Jewish people of this passage, we do not perform very well as the servants of God. I mean, you just, you just ask, just ask ourselves, I mean, how well do we reflect the glory of God? Like, God ends this passage by saying, here's why I'm sending you this servant, because I will not give my praise to idols, and I will not let my glory be credited to somebody else. Everything good in the world, he's saying, God's saying, everything good in the world, I did. And everybody should know I did it. People should know the truth. People should know who loves them and benefits them and what they're created for and how that works. That, that shouldn't be given to little images and little passions and little things that we want to ascribe stuff to. People should know the truth, and I'm not okay with them not knowing the truth, right? And so therefore he gives the servant. And so therefore if we were the servant like we were meant to be, what would that mean? It would mean that by experiencing us, people would experience the glory of God and the worthlessness of idolatry. How's that going for us? Right? And here's, here's the, the helpful bit of, of news here, is that God didn't say to Israel, you guys are terrible. You need to get it together. You need to do better. Here's some bootstraps. Sew them on and pull them up. Like, that's not what he does. He says, I will make you into this people. And the way he says he's going to do it is by sending a savior, this servant. Now, probably the most important thing, and this is all we're going to get to in this sermon, um, Then there's, obviously there's so much we can say about chapter 42, but one of the most important things is that you don't miss the point of the title itself. Think about this for a second. If the servant is Jesus, then 
Because, okay, so, so for example, like I've studied the Bible for years, and so for, for years I, would, I knew about all these servant passages in Isaiah. And so I'd be like, oh, there's a Messiah in Isaiah. It's the servant, right? And it was almost like I was treating the servant, that phrase, that title, as like a code name for Jesus. It's like it's Old Testament alias, you know? Like Charles Carmichael or something. And it's, it's not what it is. It's not just a name. It's a description. Why is God referring to the second person of the Trinity, God from eternity past, omniscient, the Lord over all creation, the King of all things, as my servant? Which is the title of a slave. It's somebody of lesser authority. And it's, it's because there is one thing it has to mean. If this person is the servant, like Israel was meant to be, like later than the church would be meant to be, it is a person who lives and is fully devoted to the will of God. I mean, that's really what servant means, isn't it? Oftentimes we think of servant in relationship to class or level or poverty or something like that. Um, you know, well, you'd be a servant if you have to, but you don't—you want to be a leader. But that's not really what servant means. What servant means is it is your job, identity, and commitment to fulfill the will of another. That's what it means to be a servant. And apparently the status range that goes along with that is whatever the worst you can think of is and, you know, the Son of God. And so in Christian thinking, servant, being a servant, servanthood, is not, is not meant to be a contrast with leadership. For us, there's no distinction between those two. A servant is simply someone who is seeking to do the will of another. For a Christian, that would be the will of God, as demonstrated through Jesus, and that, and we're servants of God to the extent to which we're fully committed to that. And then however we end up living that out, it's particular to our lives. It might be through leadership. It might be through washing toilets. It might be through being a mom and doing the same things over and over and over again because that's your role and your right duty and what God wants you to do at that moment. For others, it could be going to work that you don't particularly like or dealing with people that don't seem to want to change. It might be it was sticking in there with somebody who the, the relationship with them is not particularly recharging, but you believe that God might have some redemptive purpose for you in the relationship. There's a thousands of, thousand of not sexy reasons why we could be fully committed to things in ways that we wouldn't if we were trying to get something idolatrous out of them. But one of the things that becomes less confusing about the Christian life, instead of trying to figure out, like, find out what all the rules are and figure out what everything— is to just say, to the best of my knowledge, what is the will of God? Why is that will good, true, beautiful, right, and wise— how can I become more deeply committed to it? And then what's the first, the first and next thing for me to do? And the message, the sad message of the book of Isaiah is that is not the normal state of humanity. And that is not the normal state of people who say that they believe in God. It's not the normal state of people who say that they believe in Jesus. It's not our normal state. But I don't think that you can understand Christianity without knowing that. Now, the, here's the good news. I think that you can be a Christian and be saved and know virtually nothing about Christianity. I mean, part of the good news about the Christian faith is Jesus died for your sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. 
if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that, that God raised Christ from the dead for you, you're, you can be saved. It's that simple. It's because it's a gift. That doesn't mean you even understand the first thing about how it works or what that new identity would mean or how that would be rightly lived out or how joy and thankfulness would drive you to a new kind of life. You can be a Christian and know virtually nothing about Christianity. And if we don't understand what it means to be the servant, for Jesus to have come and to be the servant, and for us then to follow him in that, then we don't actually understand anything about Christianity, even if we are a Christian. One of the pieces of good news about Jesus being the servant is, to whatever extent he's the servant, these are the ways that we can actually be like him. Right? There's certain ways in which you're not supposed to imitate Jesus, right? You're not the Savior, right? I'm not the Savior. I'm not God Almighty. I can't solve your problems. I can't create anything. There are, ma there are many ways in relationship to things that are true about God that can never be true about me, and I shouldn't try to imitate them. But you see, to the extent to which Jesus is the servant, we can't imitate that. And that's exactly how Jesus understood his ministry. Like, if you go through the ministry of Jesus, one of the things that keeps popping up again and again is his commitment to the will of God. Right? So it, this is how Mark's gospel starts. Right? At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus was coming out of the water. He saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert for 40 days being tempted by Satan. Now look at Isaiah 42, verse 1. Here is my servant, which is covered in this passage by son, right? Person who's going to do my will, but so much so that his identity is identical to mine. I am the father and he is my son, right? Whom I uphold, oh, whom I uphold my chosen one, and then, in whom I delight. What's the meaning relationship between delight and well-pleased? Pretty parallel, right? And then he says, he will bring justice to the nations. And the first thing that happens to Jesus is he goes out to start to make war on the one who brings injustice to the nations. Right? And it says in verse 1, in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him. And how does Mark start this gospel? And what does God do in real time, space, history to demonstrate that Jesus is a servant? The, one of the first things that happens is the spirit of God actually descends on him visibly. Right? Now, if you're a believer, the spirit of God at some point descends on you, but probably not visibly. You know? But on Jesus, it did to start his ministry to demonstrate he is the anointed one. He is the one of whom God has chosen. He is his servant who will do his will. He delights in him, and he will put his spirit on him so he can bring justice to the nations and make war on the one who brings injustice to the nations. And who accuses and captures and brings darkness. He's called the prince of darkness, and in Isaiah 42, the servant is tasked with bringing light to people who are in darkness. And the illustration in chapter 42 is, why are these people in darkness? Because they're in Dungeons. There are people who are in darkness because they're captives, and they're going to be freed and see the light through the work of the servant as he brings justice to the nations. 
Jesus said this himself that this was his ministry in Mark 4. He gets done talking with the woman at the well. Remember this? The lady who had five husbands and the, the disciples are off getting food and she like does a 180 and she's running off to tell people about Jesus and the disciples come back and this is what happens. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Right? His mom doesn't live around here. Which shows, well, he's, they're kind of oblivious to what he's talking about, right? And then he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now, a number of you kids are in here this morning. Okay, let me ask you this. Does your mom or dad ever tell you to do something? And you agree to do it, and you say, yes, I'll do it. And then somewhere between that moment and the moment that task is finished, you kind of get distracted and don't actually finish it. Does that ever happen to you? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, and so here's what we all need. Let me just, let me just tell you something about this, kids. Your parents do that too, okay? They're usually bigger, more complicated tasks, but we fail to finish stuff all the time too that our daddy wants us to do. And one of the things that we need to learn and you need to learn as you grow up is that if you're really going to do the will of somebody, you've got to finish it. It's one thing to say, I'll do it. It's another thing to be so focused on and so devoted to the will of that person who's told you to do something that you finish it. That you care to remember it. That the task means so much to you that you're going to see it through to the end. Rather than it just feeling like a chore. So parents, watch your kid. When you tell them to do something and they say they'll do it and they start it and they don't do it and you go, oh, it's just a chore to them. Turn that in on yourself and ask, ask yourself the question, is there something in the will of God that you're meant to finish on that you started and didn't finish and you're acting like it's a chore and your daddy is feeling the exact same way about you you're feeling about your kid? Right? Then just a few verses later in chapter 6 in John, this is a big theme in John's gospel. Jesus said this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That is the one who believes in him. When you ask the question in chapter 42 of Isaiah, what is the will of God for the servant? It's very clear. It's A, to demonstrate and show the world the glory of God. To show everybody—people need to know what God is really like. Because if they understood it, if we got past their ignorance of it and their unwillingness to believe it, if we were able to show the real character of God winsomely enough that people could really apprehend what God is like, if there was any shred of nobility left in the divine image, they would rejoice. The character of God is fundamentally good news. You can choose to receive it as bad news. But that is a subjective response, and it's not the appropriate one. God is glorious, and to see him like he is, is to be filled with joy and thankfulness and desire for him. And that is the task of the servant, whether the servant par excellence or the servant of the people of God meant to show his truth to the earth. And the way he does it is not the way most kings and important people do it. Right? Verse 2 says, he's not going to shout out in the street. He's not going to yell. He's not going to be a big shot. 
He's not gonna, he's not gonna take weak people and hurt people that are like bent twigs and snap them off or like flickering lights on a candle that's almost burned out and blow it out. He's not like that. This king who is going to be, bring justice to the nations is going to do it through faithfulness. He's going to do it humbly, straightforwardly, with resolve. He'll never be discouraged. He'll have sufficient courage. He will never stop. But he doesn't run over and destroy weak people. He has a ministry of mercy to everyone. But he will be king. And when you recognize that, what you realize is the way God wants to demonstrate his glory to the world is by redeeming us and loving us and changing us and saving us. And that is what he did in the person of Jesus. And our, our response to this shouldn't in the first place be, well, I'm going to do better. Like, well, if Jesus, you know, Jesus is a servant, I'm supposed to be the servant. No, the, the minute you let supposed to come in, you're probably not, that's true, but that's not the proper motivation. What has to happen is you've got to actually, you've got to see this servant for who he is. And you've got to, you've got to really see what he did out of compassion for you. You've got to actually see yourself as the bruised reed. You have to, you have to see that in reality, you really are that weak. That if God was simply God with you, you would snap. You'd be snuffed out. And he's not like that. And he's come to you as gently as conceivably possible. And he's sought to draw you to himself by demonstrating his own mercy through his own son, self-sacrificially dying for you so that you could see how God's love can wipe away your sins and draw you to himself and bring redemption to all people who would believe. And when you see that, being fully committed to God's will, wanting to fully reflect God's glory through your life, and wanting to see God's message of redemption to come to all people, all the things the servant was about, will start to come naturally. It'll start to just happen, and it'll be motivated by the springs of joy and thankfulness and love, rather than, I'm going to figure out a way to do this. Because if you motivate yourself that way, you'll be like a six-year-old. You'll say, yes, Daddy, and you'll never do it. But if you understand God's glory enough to see why his will is so worthwhile and beautiful, you will work for redemption, even to the loss of your own earthly goods in life, nearly effortlessly. Because the servant is that good. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, um, Help us to, to see ourselves as the bruised reed, to see you as the Savior King that is that gentle, that's not arrogant, but that is in, incredibly powerful, that is unrelenting in his faithfulness, that will bring justice to the nations, whose life will be a covenant to the people's a new agreement between God and his people and, a God, in all, and God in all nations. Um, we want to be a people who live that out and support it and show it. We want our lives to really reflect what this servant is like and so therefore what your glory is really like. And we recognize that we are not going to be able to sufficiently perform that. And um, we thank you that Jesus has already perfectly performed what serving you must be. And it's been credited to us through faith. 
And so, Father, help us to just be what we're meant to be and be who we are in you. And help it to have real effect. Help us to want to live for your will, to live and love your glory, and to be motivated deeply for the true good of all people. And with the message of redemption, pray in Jesus' name.